Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. Back in the book of Esther. Do I need to move my mic back? I love Andy, but he always stretches this thing out a little bit. Is that good? A little dummy. Okay. Esther chapter 5. What's up, guys? Good to be back. I haven't preached in like a month. I could tell I was very nervous. And I can tell when I haven't preached in a while. It starts building back up in me. I need to get antsy. I need to get it out. So Esther chapter 5, we're excited. Um, <clears throat> Colm did a good job last week in Esther chapter 4, talking about the lamenting of Mordecai, the lamenting of Esther, um, kind of mourning the news of, of, of Haman's judgment against his people. Um, but it's cool because they didn't stay in mourning. They went into action. That's kind of where it left off um, in Esther chapter 4. Esther tells them, go fast, go pray, because we are going to figure this out. And uh, the, the, if you get one thing from this, we've only got a few weeks left. These next few chapters are short and quick. We're only going to be in about four or five more weeks, if that, um, in the book of Esther. And if you only get one thing from the book of Esther, then understand and try to wrap your mind around the fact that we serve a very sovereign God who wills and does what he wants. And we get to be a part of that. And that's pretty cool, especially when you're doing cool things like Esther is doing, um, saving her people. That's probably the coolest thing you can do um, as a Jew, as an American, whatever it is. And we get to be a part of that. But the hand, the sovereign hand of God is so active in this book, um, so evident. Uh, <clears throat> if we go all the way back, Esther was just this former slave captive girl who was freed and then just kind of growing up in a foreign land. Um, that she get promoted all the way to the queen of Persia. Um, God's hand clearly evident there. And then you have Mordecai lamenting, uh, but pushing Esther to save her people, kind of, you know, the, the famous for such a time as this verse um, in chapter 4. He's urging her not to be dumb, but to continue. And then Esther's developed this plan um, to save her people. Um, Haman has been promoted. He's been propped up. He's done everything that he, he every, the life is going pretty well for him um, until obviously Esther's plan really gets going. And um, if you know the story of Esther, if you've read this book before, you realize that this plan is uh, maybe not the way I would do things. Uh, in the sense of I am a very impatient person. Very impatient person. I don't like to wait. Um, and these next two chapters are kind of hanging out. Esther's kind of laying the groundwork. And uh, it's not a, you'd think, okay, let's just, let's, let's get real life a little bit. If my wife, okay, this is, a, I don't want to get too real life, but. If I ordered the murder of all of my wife's family, okay, I don't want to get you real life. But you'd think she would just be like, hey, that's me. You think, you know what I'm saying? You think it would be like, it could be a little quicker. Like, hey, I, you just ordered the extermination of the Jewish race. Turns out I'm Jewish. All my family is Jewish. He'd probably be like, okay, well, you know, we got we to gotta fix this. No, that's not really how Esther does it. And I think there's, there's subtlety to it. I think there's humility to it, which we're going to talk about. And I think that's the way that God wanted her to do it. That's the way that it needed to happen. Uh, but that's really, she's laying the groundwork, getting the ball rolling in Esther chapter 5. Esther 5 and 6 are really preparation chapters. Um, they're really preparing for the climax in seven, uh, in chapter 7. It's really kind of laying the groundwork um, more so. So Esther 4 we need to do something. Esther 5 and 6 are really that just getting started. And uh, we're going to read. We're going to get into it. A little bit different sermon tonight than I, uh, this morning than I usually preach in sense of format. Only got two points, and they're basically just two sermons. So, but it won't be that long, I promise. We'll be out of here. We're, hey, we're, we're timely at this church. We're timely. Let's start reading verse 1, chapter 5. Um, now it came to pass on the third day that Esther, this is the third day, right, after the morning of the fasting, that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house. Over against the king's house, and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. And it was so 
when the king saw Esther, the, the queen, standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. This is all kind of ritual, ritualistic royal behavior. Verse number three. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be given thee to the to thee. It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom. He's speaking hyperbolically. He says, what do you want? I will give you anything up to half of the kingdom. Obviously, he wouldn't have actually done that, but that's how he's showing how much he loves and favors her. Verse number four, and Esther answered, if it seemed good unto the king, right, this is the time. This is the time, hey, save my people. But what does Esther do? He says, let the king and Haman come this day into the banquet that I have prepared for him. Um, then the king said, cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now, if you're watching this unfold in a movie sense, in a TV show, in a reading a storybook, you'd say, okay, this is pretty smart. She's kind of rubbing up. She's rubbing up against the queen. She says, hey, how about you, and why don't you bring your right-hand guy, right? Because Haman's been promoted. He's not just a guy. He's the prince. He's the head of everyone. He, he's in charge other than the king. She says, why don't you and the king come to a feast? And we're watching this unfold. We're like, okay, sweet. She's getting them. This is kind of like it's building. And at this feast, this is when she's going to lay it on them. Verse number 6. And the king said to Esther, at the banquet of wine, what is thy petition? Now what do you actually want? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Once again, he's telling her, I'll do anything. Verse number 7. Then, answer, then answered Esther and said, my petition and my request is, here it is. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my petition and per, to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. She said, here it is. Come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. And we're all kind of like, ha. Okay, verse number nine. Then went Haman forth that day, joyful with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. Good Haman. And when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh's wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king into the banquet <clears throat> that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I, am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou and merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. Let's pray, and then we will jump into our story. <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the, the sovereign hand that you orchestrate and use in this story, Lord, and you do the same in our lives, Lord. You're so ever-present, ever-near, and uh, so many times we go through life absent-minded of your presence and your working, Lord, but help us that not to be the case, Lord. Help us to be forever seeking your, your will, and uh, as we read through the story of Esther and really the story of Haman in, in this chapter, Lord, we see two different attitudes, and um, unfortunately, the one attitude is much more prevalent in my life than I'd like to be, Lord. I want that to be emptied of myself today, Lord, empty of us, our, of our pride, and push us to humility, and uh, if, that, if that's all we get from the day, Lord, then, then we've gotten enough, and uh, we love you. In your name we pray, amen. Now, like I said, there is two really prevalent, uh, I use the word attitudes in, in my title, kind of shown in this chapter. This is anticlimactic in a sense that nothing really happened except for more 
preparation, which leads to verse number six. I mean, chapter number six, which we'll, uh, Coleman will talk about in a couple weeks. Um, but the two real attitudes prevalent here are very obvious, very obvious. The first is this. The first is the humility of Esther, the humility of Esther. Um, if you read through, and we're going to talk about it, um, you read through it. It may not be the first thing that jumps off to you, but when you really read the practices, the, the way she went about her, it was a humble person. And Esther's humility is what God used to save his people. On the other hand of that, on the other end of that, you have Haman, um, who was maybe the most prideful man recorded in Scripture uh, in his actions as words. And like God used Esther's humility to save his people, Haman's pride is what caused his destruction. And as we study this chapter, I really want to look at these two things, um, the pursuit of humility and the extinguish of pride. Um, we talk about pride a lot, and we're going to get into it a little bit later. And there's a reason we talk about it a lot. It's because we have a lot of it and because the Bible talks about it a lot. And on the other end, humility, something we may not have nearly as much as we'd like. The humility of Esther, the humility of Esther. Let's get into it. Esther shows us her humble spirit in several different ways that we may not catch on the first read-through. Uh, the first is Esther shows her humility in her apparel. Verse number one, now it came to pass on the third day, Esther put on her royal apparel. You say, well, she is royalty, she should put that on. Now we go back to a real-life scenario, right? We like to read the Bible and then at, and kind of get it in our own mind. Real-life scenario is she's just found out, she's been weeping and mourning for days about the destruction of her people she hasn't seen her king in 30 days. She could have a little haste, but she says, no, no, no. I need to do this the right way. Humbles herself to the tradition of the people that aren't her people, right? She's a Persian queen. She humbles herself. She puts on the royal, apaver, a royal apparel, and she walks in. Verse number one, not only her apparel, but her approach. It, it, the picture of this is a long kind of narrow galleyway. The king is sitting on one end. You walk in here. It's kind of another room, but you can see through it, and you kind of step in, and the king says yes or no, she humbly steps in. This is her husband. She's the queen. He's the king, but she humbly steps forward. Uh, she waits on him to approve of her, right? I, I think it's very obvious, and we see it in this text. He offers her half the kingdom twice in four verses. Uh, it's very obvious, and, and even in the past chapters, that Esther is very well loved by this king. This is not something where she's, like, asking a husband that doesn't like her. No, she's beloved, but she's still willing to do what needs to be done uh, to speak to him. Her apparel, her approach, her attitude. Um, this is what bothers me because this is so absent of me. But she did not just rush the king and say, look, he did this. He wants to kill my cousin. My cousin raised me. These are my people. No, no, no. What did she say? King, come to a banquet. They go to the banquet. What did she say? King, come to another banquet. Humbly laying the stage um, for what will eventually be, uh, I don't want to surprise you, victory. Victory. Esther's humility. In fact, her humility, not just in those things, but despite some things. She had humility despite her position, right? She's the queen. If there was any woman in the, in the nation of Persia that did not need humility, right? She's the queen of Persia. Despite her position, she's humble. Despite, like I said a second ago, despite her favor that she's already earned and garnered from the queen. There was a year-long competition of a lot of different women, and the king chose her. Then he offers her half her kingdom twice. That's how beloved she was. And she says, no, no, no. I'm going to humbly submit to the way things must be. Despite her position, despite her favor. How about this? Despite her right as a Jewish person to defend 
and save her people that her king, her husband, just ordered the death of, she humbly walks. Now, this is the way that Esther showed her humility. This is despite Esther's humility. But I really want to build a case for humility this morning. Um, Piper says that humility is the opposite of a sense of entitlement. We talk all the time that we are an entitled people. Humility is the opposite of that. Humility for the Christian is solely from Christ. Solely from Christ. Humility is okay with God getting all the credit when there is credit to be had. Paul says in Romans 1.14 that he's a debtor to everyone. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. He says, I owe everyone everything. That is a spirit of humility. That is a spirit that unfortunately is missing from our lives many times. Why? Why be humble, right? Humility sounds kind of, like I said, it sounds, it sounds kind of painful at times, right? We want to rush in. We want to solve. Why be humble? Well, for Esther, her, hum- her humility is what led her to her victory. And as Christians, this is the, the, I'm all leading to a point. Humility will do the same for us. Humility will lead us to our victory. But what is our victory? Well, I would make the point, the victory for the Christian is a life in obedience to God's word. But here's the part we miss. Oh, almost died. With joy. The Christian's life. What is our victory? What is the, why be humble? Why seek humility? As natural as pride is for us, humility is unnatural. We do not chase humility. But why should we as Christians? Because humility leads to victory. It did for Esther, it will do for us. What is our victory? Our victory is a life of obedience to God's word with joy. There's a lot of people who will obey the laws of God's word and live miserable lives. That's not victory. That's not victory. Victory is when God says something, you do it with joy. And the only way that can be done is with humility. It is not wrong to want joy, but it is wrong to think it can come from anything other than Jesus. Now, I want joy, but we have disappointments. We want joy, but we have failures. We want joy, but we have sickness and death. We want joy, but we have suffering. I wish that God had given us a blueprint to find joy despite our suffering. Good news. Philippians 2. Flip over. Flip over to Philippians 2, and we're going to find the blueprint to joy. Find the blueprint to joy. Now, if you, I want, you got to bear with me. We're, we're, it's a long road, a short, uh, I don't know what I'm saying. It, it's, it's a one big point, but it's a long road to get there. Philippians 2. If you go to the book of Philippians, Paul is writing the church of Philippi. The church of Philippi is under intense persecution. The theme of the book of Philippians is the joy of the Lord. Paul is writing this from a prison. Not just, oh, he's in prison for three months. The first verse, he's on the, the first chapter, he's on the chopping block. He literally, the first chapter is, if I die, That would be cool because I get to go to heaven. If I don't die, that would be cool because I get to keep helping you. That's the first chapter. So this is the intense suffering that he's under, okay? Now, we all think we suffer, okay? We think we we go through things. My man's in jail with his head on the chopping block. He is suffering, okay? Now, Philippians 2, we're going to read verse 29 in 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 Philippians 1. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. He says, we will suffer for his sake. But if there be any consolation or encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels or depths and mercies, fulfill ye my joy. He says, complete my joy that ye be like-minded and have the same joy 
having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He says the way we can get through, the way we can have victory throughout the suffering, because they're under intense persecution, he's about to die, and he says, look, there's so much joy to be had. Christian, there is so much joy to be had. How do we do it? Verse number three, Paul brilliantly builds a case. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. If you want joy in this life, walk humbly. Verse number three says, do nothing with selfish intentions, but think of everyone else. Verse number four, don't worry about your interests, but worry about the interests of others. Hmm. That's opposite of the way we seek joy. Let nothing be done through cyber vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Point number one. Point number two, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of God and the things of others. Excuse me. And then he gives point one, point two, and then he gives us a beautiful illustration. Maybe my favorite six verses in the entire Bible. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind he's speaking about is a mind of humility. A mind of humility. Who being in the form of God. Please, please, please listen to these words. Don't, don't glaze over a Sunday morning reading of God's word. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be with God, but made himself of no reputation. It took upon the form of a servant. It was made in the, ser- in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things upon the earth, under the earth. And this and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says the illustration of why you should seek humility is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because your Savior loved you so much that he was the creator God and humbled himself to become a man. For your sake. For my sake. You guys, I, I, think, we, I think we miss, and we're getting into the Christmas season. This is kind of a Christmas text. We miss the humiliation that it would take for a baby to, for a God to become a baby. We celebrate the birth of Christ. Do you understand the humility for God, the creator God, to become a baby and be cared for the way a baby should be cared for? This is the creator God willingly humiliating himself for the sake of others. Willingly. Lovingly. Choosing that. And he would choose it again. That's the crazy part. He'd do it all over again if he needed to, but he doesn't. But he willingly humbled himself so that we could have everlasting joy. Here's the way to receive joy now. Willingly humble yourself. Just as Jesus did. Now you could never humiliate yourself the way that Jesus did. But you could live for everyone else around you. And what Paul's building here and what Esther showed so clearly is the way that we have joy, the way that we, the way that we live our life with joy, the way we have victory is by willingly humiliating, willingly living for those around us. And that is so anti-us. That's so anti-Statesville, North Carolina. We want to live for us. This is America. We built this. We got this. This is ours. Nothing is yours. It's all his. Until you choose to embrace the mindset that everything you have is because of Christ, you are living a life of pride and rejecting humility that you've been called to. Jesus came and humiliated himself, not just for our salvation, thank God for that, but for an example of how we should live. Now, we don't need to go willingly humiliate ourselves, but we do need to live for those around us. He says, let nothing be done in strife or anger. Think nothing of yourself. Think nothing of your interests. Think only of those around you. That's humility. 
That's what Esther was doing. Esther was willingly walk into a place. Now we know she's got favor. We know she's got a right. We know all these things. Willingly walk into a place where she could be struck down right then, but she was doing it for the sake of her people. You realize Esther could have still stayed queen. No one needed to know she was a Jew. She could have stayed the queen, lived her life, done her thing. No, no, no. She said, I'm willing to, se- to step into a place and think of someone else. How often do we actually do that? How often do we live our life thinking of someone other than ourselves? How about this? Someone other than our family. We like to excuse our pride by including our family in it. We're only thinking of ourselves, but we say, for the sake of my family. No, that's yourself. You're just giving yourself a little wriggle room by saying your family. But really, pride is just as evident in you. The lack of humility is just as gone. But we like to cushion it with our family. No, no, no. Live for those around us. Esther found joy, found victory in humbly living for those around us. When I, when I read these chapters, when I read these six verses, and I want you to go back and just read these six again. This may be our Christmas message in two weeks, uh, these six verses, I don't know. But when you read the humbling of Jesus, it develops a, an awe, a shock, a wonder in my mind that I don't think you can ever walk humbly until you experience until you are awed by the grace of God in your life, why would you be humble? Until you are shocked that he would willingly give up everything for you, why wouldn't you live for yourself? Why wouldn't you take credit for everything that you have? Why wouldn't you do those things? Why wouldn't you? Because the grace of God. Paul says Jesus has loved those around him so much he willingly humbled himself but he's not just pointing us how to do it, uh, pointing us at Jesus to, to do it. He's pointing it at Jesus so that we would do it as well. The reason we live life without joy is because we've believed the lie that joy can be found in anything other than Christ. And for those who don't know Jesus, that may be true. But for a follower of Jesus, there's only one source of joy, and that's Jesus Christ. And we need the gospel, right? We hear the phrase, we need the gospel every day. You need the gospel to push you to humility because humility centered around Christ is the only humility for the Christian. It's the only way we can obtain it is a gospel-given humility. And if we want victory, the reason Esther had victory is because she humbled herself to do the steps she needed to do to obtain it. And she did. She did. We should as well. That, that, that's the case for humility. And now we kind of shift. We shift off the story of Esther. She's She's had one successful banquet. She's planning another successful banquet the next day. And we shift to Haman in verse number 9. Just as prevalent as the humility of Esther is, the pride of Haman even more so. Verse number 9. Then Haman went forth that day. Then went Haman forth that day, joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh's wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children, and all the things wherein the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him of the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, Moreover, yet Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself, and tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Jairus' wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou to the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon, and then go thou and merrily with the king unto the banquet, that the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallow 
to be made. Haman's pride clearly evident. Humility unnatural for us, but unfortunately pride is maybe the most natural thing about a human. Haman shows his pride in really two ways, the same way we do. The first is boasting. Verse 11 and 12, he literally, if you read, if you, uh, if you read those along, he, he literally invites his friends. He gets home, he says, bring my friends, bring my wife, and then he just goes off talking about how good life is. He says, Haman told them of the glory of his riches, the multitude of his children, all the things wherein the king had promoted him, literally boasting to his friends about how good his life was. It's funny because his wife is there and he's telling her about how many kids she's had. Says the multitudes of my son, she's, she probably knows. <laughs> he can't help himself. He's boasting. Boasting is really the most obvious form of pride. We, we see it, right? We, see, we know people who boast. We, we, we've seen ourselves boast. Kids like to boast. Teenagers like to boast. Uh, men like to boast. Women like to boast, but really only to other women, I think. That's kind of like the vibe that they have. I was thinking about this. That's just my opinion. That I feel like I don't really see a lot of boastful women, but I think maybe women to women, they boast a little bit more. Men, a little bit more so. Um, but to be honest, boasting is not the most prevalent form of pride. Uh, it's actually the second form that he shows us. And this is really the form I want to talk about because boasting kind of takes care of himself. Because boasting is kind of annoying, right? If you're a boastful person, you're not going to have very many friends. It's hard to, it's wearisome to be around a boastful person. What may be more wearisome that we don't talk about it much is, is, is really the form of pride I want to talk about, verse number 13. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai says this, I've been given all, and Haman says this, I've been given all of this, but the reason I can't really have joy, the reason this means nothing, is because there's one Jew sitting down when he should be standing up, and it ruins it all for me. This form of pride is self-pity. This form of pride is moping. This form of pride is pouting. And that's what Haman is doing. Probably a more common expression of pride, self-pity, pouting, moping. Unfortunately for Haman, he has both. Pride exists in every sinful heart. We're either fighting it with gospel-centered humility or we are fueling it like Haman. Haman fueled his pride the same way we do. When we get in a spirit of pouting, when we get in a spirit of moping, when we get in the spirit that things just didn't go our way, all we are saying is our way is better than God's way, and we are above him, and that is pride. It's pride. Most sin leads to pride, but moping, self-pity, we don't like to talk about that. Most of the time, if someone comes in talking about how great they are, we're like, hey, bro, chill out. If someone comes in talking about how terrible, how terrible life is for them, we're like, oh, we coddle. It's one of the few sins we coddle, self-pity and pouting, because it's so prevalent in us. You know why we coddle someone else's pouting? Because we want them to coddle our pouting. And our self-pity. And really we're just saying, hey, God got this one wrong, but it's going to be okay. God got it wrong for me too, so give me some love, but it's going to be okay. And we fuel it. So Haman fueled his pride. It, obviously Haman's a, a prideful man, but when you add the things that Haman adds, it's only going to get worse. And he fuels it the same way we do. He fueled it first with foolish entitlement. Haman allowed the fact that he felt he should be treated, he allowed the fact that he felt he should be treated a certain way to keep him from finding joy in the blessings he had received. He felt like he had deserved, he had earned Mordecai's submission, and because he did not receive it, all the blessings that he had been received were nothing. Because his sense of entitlement. He said, I deserve his respect, and because I'm not getting it, all these blessings that I've been given mean absolutely nothing to me. And how often do we do the same? God pours his blessings onto us, but for some reason we get something in our mind that we didn't get something we earned, something we deserved. It takes away everything else. It ruins it all for us. 
And when we read the story of Haman, we're like, oh, dude, you're so stupid. We, would ne-. we do it every day. We do it every day. We focus on these little things that dictate our lives when the blessings of God are being poured out all over us. Poured out all over us. And yet we focus on this one thing where we were wronged. Pride. Pride. Self-pity. Pouting. But he allows this entitlement to fuel him. Pride brings entitlement, and entitlement brings pride, and that's just a circle of foolishness. Not only foolish entitlement, but foolish counsel. Haman surrounded himself with people who would tell him exactly what he needed to hear. He literally brought in his friends and wife just to pout. Right? I mean, verse number, verse number 13, yet all this availing be nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew. And then what does his wife do? This is a crazy wife. This is wild. She says, then Zeresh's wife and all her friends said, make a gallows, right? Let's kill him. I mean, if I ever came home and was complaining about Coleman to, to Sammy and she was like, get the gallows. Let's, like, you think you know, like, okay, this isn't the best counsel. But this is who he surrounded himself with. And when you surround yourself with foolish counsel, your pride will just be expounded. He, he found people who would tell him exactly what he wanted to hear, and guess what they did? Told him exactly what he wanted to hear. And instead of saying, hey, Haman, you've just been made the prince of, of all the land. You've been given all of this. You're getting your way in every single way except for one guy. Why don't you just focus on the blessings of God? They said, you know what? You're right. That does stink, and we got to do something about it. And those were fools. Fools. Who you surround yourself with is who you will become. If you surround yourself with fools, you will be a fool. If you find counsel from anyone, consistently finding counsel from people who are not centered in the word of God, I don't know if there's anything more foolish. If the people you consult in your decisions do not know Jesus, passionately pursuing Jesus, why, do you, why are you consulting them in your decisions? What gives them the authority? You're a child of God. You're a son or daughter of God. He has saved you and given you a life to live and you are seeking counsel from someone who is absent from that path. No wonder you make foolish decisions. No wonder your life is scattered with foolish decisions, foolish mistakes, foolish everything, because you're surrounding yourself with foolish counsel. And it's fueling your pride of life. It's fueling your pouting. It's fueling your, fueling your boasting. And it's fueling your foolish decisions. And until you f- surround yourself with people, not who are good people. I don't want good people in my life. I want Bible people in my life. I want word of God people in my life. I don't care if they say mean things to me if it comes from the word of God. That's what we need. That's what we should seek. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of that out there. There's a lot more self-pity wallowing together than biblical counseling going on. This word biblical counseling is thrown about something. You know what biblical counseling is? Finding out what the Bible says about something. We should all be biblically counseling. You don't need a degree to tell someone what the Bible says about something. In fact, you should be doing that every single day with your kids, your spouse, and your friends. That's biblical counseling. That's what we should be doing. And Zeresh was devil counseling. She said, get the gallows. Get the gallows. And, and, and this, this foolish counsel, what, what did it lead to? It led to his, his, his death. Foolish entitlement, foolish counsel, foolish solutions. Instead of enjoying the blessings that he had received, he decided what needed to happen. The most important thing that he could do. You understand, this is like two days right here. He says, he literally left dinner and said, go make the gallows. The next day, the gallows were made. It's like an overnight project. Go get the gallows. And what started with pride led to entitlement, fueled by bad counsel, led to bad solutions to a silly problem, which led to his death. 
all this effort to solve a problem that did not matter. It was a problem of, of disrespect from Mordecai to Haman that ruined and eventually took his life. He was so focused on such a silly thing that he paid the price with, his, with death. With death. The way that he planned to kill Mordecai was, of course, the way that the king eventually orders his death. All because his pride went undealt with. In fact, instead of even attempting to deal with it, he put fuel on the fire. If you do not deal with your pride, your, your pride will deal with you. I could give you an illustration, but I don't think there's a better illustration than Haman. I don't think there's a better biblical narrative illustration than the death of Haman, all fueled by his pride. So how do we fight pride? How do we get ourselves out of this self-pity routine, this moping, this pouting? I will say this, Harlow has the cutest pouty face, and I don't think it's sin when she does it. But when you guys do, it is. You can hide your pride, but the gospel is the only thing that can kill it. So kill it every single day. Every time you have an opportunity to take credit for something, give that credit to God. And really the most important, the way that you fight pride is by believing God's word. I'm going to read you guys a few verses. I want you to bear with me. We're almost done. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variables, neither shadow of turning. Every good thing comes from God. When you believe that, you'll think much less of yourself. Isaiah 52, 12 through 13, I, even I, am he that comforteth you, who, who art thou, that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die. He says, I'm the one that comforts you. Who are you afraid of a man that will die? I'm the God creator. And the son of man which shall be made as grass, and forgetteth the Lord thy maker that hath stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? He's saying, why would you concern yourself with fear from a man that will die when the God of creation that will live forever is holding you in his hand? When you believe that, you'll realize that nothing you can do will keep you the way the Lord will. Nothing you will do. Second Peter 1.3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all the things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. All good things come from him, and he is all we need. Belief in that will lead to humility, and humility will lead to joy, and joy in the Christian life is the most victorious thing you can achieve. But it starts with humility. It starts with understanding that everything you are is nothing because of you. Everything you are is because of Christ. Unbelief in that, when you hear these verses and you reject them, through your pouting, through your worry, through your fear, through your pride of life, when you reject it, when you embrace the unbelief, that's what leads to pride because you will come up with your own solutions and your pride will lead to your destruction. Just as it did for Haman. Maybe not in a gruesome way as Haman did, but it will live to a miserable Christian life because you are trying to solve problems that you are incapable of solving. God will do his will, but your attitude will determine your place in that will. So here's the message. Matt, you come play. We're done. Here's the message. Run to the gospel to achieve humility and to avoid the destruction of pride. Run to the gospel every day. Run to the fact that you were nothing but a worthless sinner and Christ loved you so much despite yourself that he willingly gave his son to save you. Run to that humiliating truth that all you are is because Christ picked you up and made you his.
run to it every day. Run to it every day. If you do not seek that, the pride in your, your own heart will be fueled by yourself, by your entitlement, by the people around you, by your silly solutions to silly problems, and you will find yourself so far from the joy of God. So far from the victory that you could have. Ruined by pride. Ruined by pride. So run to the gospel for humility and avoid pride. Esther's humility saved her people while Haman's pride cost him his life. So the question is this, what price will you pay for your pride before repenting of it? Will it cost you your marriage? Because that would be a really dumb thing. For you to think so highly of yourself that you're pouting, you're moping, you're boasting would cost you relationships, would cost you friendship, would cost you gospel opportunities because of your pride. How many things will you have to pay the price of before you repent and realize that all you are is because of Him? That's the message. That's the prayer. Run to humility. Run to the gospel. Devoid the destruction of pride. You guys stand. We're going to pray. Lord, thank you, for, thank you for moments in my life that are humbling. I know when I found this text, it has woken me up in so many ways. Do that for the people today, Lord. Do that for our church. Help us to find joy only in you because that's the only source. Everything else is faux, fake, underwhelming. You are all we need.